Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. We are broadcasting from the Ventura River watershed in Southern California on traditional and unceded Chumash territory. Learn more at bcm-net.org. to spend uh, a little over an hour with my friend Mauricio Tafur Salgado. He, he's really, uh, Mauricio, um, I don't know, six or seven years ago, interned with, with us here in, uh, uh, in the Ventura River watershed at Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. And since then, he uh, remains one of my very favorite colleagues and, and friends. Um, so I want to introduce him both formally and informally, uh, but the reason that we thought when we were uh, thinking of uh, this series, uh, and I was, I was asked to uh, think of a, a theologian activist to have conversation with, uh, Mauricio was the first one who popped into to my mind. It's not the first time I've interviewed him on a podcast. Um, he uh, describes himself on his uh, website as divinely tormented and first generation born to proudly subversive Colombians with graduate degrees, brown skinned, aspiring bioregionalist, cis hetero married artist pursuing justice and healing through a decolonial framework. I come from the Everglades watershed, my antepasados and a solid plate of my grandma's arepas and bonuelos. My <laughs> educational background begins in the public schools and community centers of South Florida among migrant farm workers. Uh, I might add Mauricio's parents still working in those communities today. It was among those folks that I, Mauricio, learned the power of theater to break through patriarchal and generational chasms. I continued my training as a mischief maker at the Juilliard School in New York, and then in Pedagogies of Resistance with professors like Brigitte at Union Theological Seminary, and then on to graduate studies in theater at Brown University. Uh, today, um, Mauricio is uh, a relatively new faculty at New York University in theater studies, uh, and <clears throat> He says, somewhere at the soft center of all that is this continuous dance that I'm joyfully fumbling through with my beloved and with the divine. Um, so we'll, we'll get into some of that um, as, we, as we go, but I always like to um, let um, people also introduce themselves. So... Um, Mauricio, if you could, uh, anything you want to say about yourself to correct or otherwise? Um... No, beautifully put, Chad. Uh, if anything, I will add is that someday that, that bio will include uh, that I also come by way of your uh, tortilla, tortillas and refried beans for lunch. Uh, which is still one of my, my favorite aspects of uh, visiting your home. Uh, and if anyone hasn't visited Ched's home, make sure that when you do, you ask for these refried beans and tortillas. And they make these awesome 
gosh, sauces to go with it. Enough. Enough with the food. Dr. Call, an ode to you. Yes, food at the center of this work. That's it. That's all I got, Chad. How about you? Right. Uh, I do want to say that, uh, <clears throat> as, as Amy mentioned, I uh, worked with the founders of the Center and Library back in 2008, 2009, 2010, to first um, imagine this project of a Center and Library. Uh, these were three renowned uh, scholars in uh, both uh, Hebrew Bible and New Testament uh, who wanted to donate their libraries really to people involved in social movements. And that's a tough sell these days, right? Libraries themselves um, have gone the way of Zoom and uh, aren't, aren't the, the easiest sell. But we have established this amazing space with the great partnership of folk like Amy and the Community of Living Traditions at Stony Point Center uh, in the Upper Hudson Valley. Uh, and it's a space where you can consider taking um, a sabbatical or a study weekend or month uh, where you can come visit. Uh, it's a world-class library in, uh, that has volumes from all three of the Abrahamic faiths. Um, there's, a, there's a fantastic community on site there's overnight accommodations. Um, you can sit with the venerable uh, Norman Gottwald, uh, the great dean of Hebrew Bible studies, who uh, lives on site at, uh, at Stony Point. So it's a great place. Uh, those of you, Jeff Geary and others in, uh, in the New York area, really want you to make sure to get on by there. Um, <clears throat> but this, uh, this is an experiment. And so part of our strategy for trying to drive a little bit of traffic hard to do these days in, in COVID lockdown, but uh, if and when uh, the world opens up, we do want folks to find their way to Stony Point as a physical location, but it's also a circle of people who appreciate the intersection of seminary, sanctuary, and street. And um, it, it, I, I just recently stepped off the board uh, in part to allow younger and more diverse board members to come on board. It's an exciting new season in the life of the CLBSJ. These, this series of conversations are an attempt to spread um, not just good conversation, but also uh, spread that circle so that you can consider being part, uh, as Jennifer Henry has been, of this uh, experiment to try to integrate um, the heads, the hands, the heart, and the head. Uh, Mauricio Salgado is someone who does that very well, and maybe a place to start. Um, <clears throat> Mauricio is to talk about what it means to you to be the son of immigrants from Colombia, growing up in South Florida. Um, devout Catholic folk who um, really have given their life to service to, to marginalized communities. Say, say a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks, Chad, for invoking Rocio y Carlos, my parents. Um, my experience as a first generation, uh, you know, U.S. born to them, to that particular couple is, uh, it's, it's full of so many things. I will name that most recently I've been thinking about what it means to be mestizo. Um, my, my mother claiming a lineage that goes as far back as the 12th century. Uh, to Norman conquerors um, through uh, Spain, through a royal family that was one of the uh, founding families of Cali. 
you know, a colonizing force. And then my father's family who can't trace its lineage beyond a couple of generations, if anything, to the Pihau, uh, whom in the 1950s is said to have been fully assimilated. You know, and again, the current history books argues that that language has been fully erased, although I contend that that's not true. Nonetheless, what it means to be mestizo in that way, right? The, the erasure that comes with and the kind of romanticization uh, uh, of being, you know, of, of being unified, of being one, of claiming it's all one thing. And yet one part of that history doesn't get remembered. There's that piece of it and how that shows itself up in class divide and class behaviors, how that is present in my family and the kind of misogyny that is so present in uh, the culture I was raised in that my parents were resisting, my mother in particular, you know, eight of nine, um, five of six women in her household, uh, rebuking, resisting uh, these gender norms that wouldn't uh, give her agency or voice and really demanding, expecting me to have a deep analysis of my toxic masculinity in the ways that my toxicity might, uh, others might feel and recognize in my behavior. So both of those things simultaneously happening in my home, a home of a lot of analysis, a home of a lot of reflection. My folks are therapists. Some might say I'm reflected out, right? I spend way too much reflecting and analyzing what's happening in, in the space around me, but very grateful for that. Uh, and then there is the, the story of the work, right? You're naming my parents and their background as uh, community organizers and um, running this community center called En Familia, which is for the migrant farm working communities in South Florida, primarily Central American, South American, Caribbean. Uh, but using all the tools that they learned in the church once upon a time of gathering in small groups, of speaking to the issues, of centering the question, kind of Frarian pedagogy without them knowing that's what they were doing necessarily, leaning on, you know, the liberation theology, theologians of the communities they came up in. Again, whether or not they would recognize that. Uh, and using theater, using role play. So from a very early age, you know, my parents would do these parenting courses and the way that they would start, my mother would drag me into the middle of the room, kicking and screaming, being like, yeah, muchacho, carajo, no ves que estoy cansada, I'm so tired, coño. And me being like, but mommy, I'm so hungry. And then my father would bust in being like, mujer, where's my dinner? And my mom being like, I've been working all day. What have you been doing? And him being like, I've been working too. It's your job to make them. They're going back and forth and they're fighting. And finally they'd freeze it. And my mother would turn to the women in the audience and say, women, do you recognize this? Is this your experience? And what would you do? And the women laugh uncomfortably. And then they talk a little. And then my father says, wait a minute, men. Do you recognize this experience? And crickets, right? The men completely uncomfortable. The women laugh at them, obviously, because they're like, that's right. They do recognize this. Ridiculous. And then they'd get into it. My father would get it out of them. And then finally, my mother would turn to me and say, Y mijo, y tú, how does this make you feel? And we'd, we'd, we'd hear these gasps and these moments of uncomfortable giggles. Parents being like, What? Our kids should talk? Our kids have the room to speak? Uh, and in that moment, as my mother kind of rehearsed, me, uh, I would say, it feels bad to be treated badly, right? Something like that, nice and simple, and everybody would laugh, but then I would go on a tirade. I'd improvise, and my mother to this day is like, oh my gosh, the ways you aired our dirty laundry in front of all those people. Um, 
that's, that's really my journey, right? Constantly airing dirty laundry, uh, co- reflecting outwardly uh, for others, reckoning with the messiness of our past as we try to envision a new way forward. So many uh, folks on, on this uh, virtual gathering here uh, would know well that the challenge that folks in the critical academy have had um, trying to translate their work into the modes of popular education. Uh, and that is popular education, of course, is um, the, the stratum of education and embodiment that is so very important to social movements of justice. Um, obviously for you, um, including the, the, the early experience that you just narrated, uh, that led to experimenting with, with um, theater and, and in general and popular theater in particular uh, as a form of popular education. Now, be, before you, uh, I want you to talk about that a little bit, maybe how you went from those, those early um, sociodramas to uh, actually studying theater formally beginning at, at Juilliard. Um, but I want to preface this by um, reminding this lovely group uh, that uh, the Center and Library for the Bible of Social Justice, um, early on as a celebration of our opening, uh, almost a decade ago, uh, published this anthology called Liberating Biblical Study. I think you can see this. Hopefully some of you have this book. I love this book in part because it's my mother's art on the cover. Um, but the subtitle is Scholarship, Art, and Action in honor of the Center and Library for the Bible and Social Justice. Well, um, we've not done a terribly good job um, centering the arts in, in our uh, struggle to uh, found and expand the Center and Library. And we're, I know Emmy is determined to give more of an arts focus. Uh, the great musician, jazz musician Warren Cooper's on the call. He's a, a compatriot in this work and, uh, and we need to give more, uh, more space to the arts. That's one reason why I thought a conversation with Mauricio would be great because he has just done such a phenomenal job at integrating faith and justice, theology and the arts, um, popular education, popular theater. So here you are a little kid being pulled into sociodramas uh, and then suddenly you find yourself at Juilliard. How did that happen? Oh my goodness. That happened because my dream as a kid was to get married. Being raised by marriage counselors, the dream was I'm going to be the best married person ever. And then I failed at that and I had sex way too early and I had to keep too many secrets from my parents. And my teachers groomed me, were like, hey, you're actually a really good clown. You're, you're, you, you're happy telling stories. So maybe you should audition for schools. But I was bound to my high school sweetheart. And thankfully, she was the one who was like, I'm not dating somebody that doesn't have ambition, that doesn't have goals and dreams. So I was like, all right, I'll audition for these schools. And then I ended at the Juilliard School, right? Which little did I know what that meant at the time. But gosh, after I got in and I found out, I was like, hey, chip on my shoulder. All right, I'm going to go do a thing. And then I get to New York and my second week of school is September 11th of 2001. 
And me, like so many others in my generation who were just coming into their own and asking critical questions at that moment in time, uh, wondered, what, what are we doing here? Why? What? How does this make sense? Thankfully, I came from a tradition that understood what it was to reckon with these chasms of difference and distance, uh, which was so present in New York City for as much as the, my experience, the, the myth of this coming together um, might, might be um, perpetuated at the moment. What I experienced was a lot of Islamophobia, was a lot of fear. Uh, and for us, it became at school, if we're going to stay here, how about we ask some critical questions about what we're doing with our craft? Uh, and thankfully, it was easy enough for me to return home. The story's more complicated than this, but the gist of it is was to re-engage with my family and was to gather all of my friends who were also asking these questions and to say, hey, let's work with these communities I grew up in, these migrant farm working communities who otherwise would not have summer programming. And through my parents' community center, started organizing summer camps, right? We didn't know what we were doing. We knew we had a passion and a willingness. And thankfully, we were insecure enough that we didn't lead with answers. We led with a lot of questions. We were like, how do you do this? How do we do this? What do you all want to do? Uh, and we were silly and funny enough that students were game to sit in a room with us for a couple of weeks and that blossomed into this nonprofit organization called Artists Striving to End Poverty, which now works in many countries um, in multiple settings, partnering with other organizations, uh, doing this work, asking questions alongside community partners to see how uh, improvisation, how, how performance, how art in general might help folks to think divergently about their current circumstances. Now, partly through ASTEP, Artists Striving to End Poverty, um, you were expressing not only a desire to work for justice, uh, but also uh, to curate uh, a broader and deeper faith experience. This is a, a big part of your journey, and it brought you to Union Theological Seminary for a minute, um, where uh, you were, uh, I think you did as much organizing as studying while you were there. Would that be true? <laughs> yes, and thankfully, I had very generous teachers who <laughs> uh, counted that as scholarship, rightfully recognizing it as scholarship. Yeah, you know, I, I do want to begin by recognizing that my, my faith rootedness, you named, right, I come from a, a, a Catholic culture, recognizing that it's more cultural for us, for me and my household, than it was dogmatic my, my mother quick to always pray at the kitchen table to her Dios Madre y Dios Padre um, and would like whisper it to me at service uh, right before falling asleep, right? It's like uh, my relationship with church very much like, okay, community groups, community, right? Spaces where we gather to be with people, less to necessarily hear the word. Um, and it honestly wasn't until my grandfather passed away and I was 17 and a half-ish, um, my grandfather, on my father's side, uh, was, among other things, uh, a, a sexually abusive drug and alcohol abuser who molested many members of my family and brought a lot of trauma into my household, including with me. And uh, as a kid, I didn't fully understand what was happening. I knew that my parents told him, you are not allowed to go near your grandson. Mind you, I'm the first. You're not allowed to go near your grandson, which meant a lot to him, until you, you, you get better, until you do something to change. 
Um, little did I know what my parents were modeling at the time, that they were actually making room for him to change. Uh, and, you know, he engages in AA, he changes some of his habits, we re-engage as a family. I rebuild a connection, uh, again, not knowing enough about the trauma he caused to, 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 to shun him outright and to say never again. Uh, and then when he dies in a car accident on, a, on his way to an AA meeting, um, the, all his children come and they all come with all their hurts, all their trauma, all their pain, um, wrestling with forgiveness. Some of them still unable to, rightfully so, not calling them out for it uh, either way. And at the viewing, right, body in the casket before closing it, the priest says, who wants to speak uh, for this man, for Bernardo? And my entire family is silent. There's too much hurt there. Uh, and instead, some strangers start raising their hands. Man raises his hand, says, I, I want to say that Bernardo taught me how to be a father. Another person raises their hand. I want to say Bernardo taught me how to be a community member. And these were all members of my grandfather's AA group who were there present for the, his stories and his pain and his trials and for whatever wisdom he shared with them. And boy, did that blow me away. What it was for this man, whom in my dualistic thinking at the time thought, it's one way or the other. You're either bad or you're good. Uh, and given everything I'd learned that weekend, my grandfather was bad. And in that moment, wrestling with, wait, wait, how is this true? And I went to my grandmother and I said, Grandma, how is this possible? And my abuelita says, Fe, faith. And boy, did that rock me because boy, do I have issues with what that word means. And I went home that night and in my bed crying, I thought to myself, okay, I, continue, I can continue not to believe or I can begin an investigation with this notion of faith. What would it mean if I embraced it? Uh, and that really is the beginning of that journey, which leads me to Union Theological Seminary and my history of working around trauma, around uh, efforts, moves, desires, attempts at healing uh, trauma from the point of view of the traumatized and the traumatizer. Initially responding immediately, right, to those in immediate crises and now thinking more institutionally, um, moving from the individual to the communal to the historic uh, but that's my body of work into union where I happened to arrive in a similar moment of crisis, uh, the summer fall of the uh, state murder of Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and Freddie Gray, and simultaneously a community in deep mourning and anger and frustration. And as I had done once before, organizing, being like, all right, folks, can we organize some space? Can we make space to process? Can we support those who need to be outside right now? Can we support those who need to be inside talking about this right now? Uh, and so uh, I will share with you one of the most poignant moments of that. Thankfully, I, I got to study with James Cohn, with Reverend Dr. James Cohn, and he, he took his last class, his last intro to theology class, and he brought it down into the room that we had occupied. Um, we had occupied a room downstairs, if you know Union Theological, one of their nicer rooms, 101, I think the room is, downstairs near its cafeteria. And uh, Cohn brought his last lecture into that room and connected it to his history of activism and work within that institution to what we were doing in that moment. As you say, bringing the sanctuary uh, and the academy and the streets. You do better. You have three S's, right? Bringing them all together into the same space. Um, I want uh, to uh, briefly uh, visit the, 
the last uh, leg of that particular journey where you go on to, to Brown, uh, do your MFA and, and uh, directing and theater studies and, and you're, you're wrestling as to whether you're gonna go the direction of a practitioner um, as an activist and or as a theater director, um, whether you're going to be in the academy and the fruitful conversations uh, that you had with many people to try to figure that out. Um, as you're, you're thinking about that, I, I want to also, I, I like to shout out people in these communities and I wanna uh, <clears throat> give a, uh, a special shout out to, uh, to my friend Diem Lafortune, who I, I believe is uh, tuning in from uh, Toronto somewhere. Um, uh, she is an amazing uh, Cree Jewish woman who recently has um, been curating Decolonizing the Heart workshops, helping folk work through indigenous uh, struggles. You'll see her on your screen as Mama D. Great to have you on the call, uh, Mama D. And uh, thanks for the, the work you do. We'll, we'll get into more of that in our conversation, but back, back to you, uh, Mauricio. Uh, yeah, here you, you get uh, this um, amazing graduate degree. Um, you're directing plays, you're writing plays, um, <clears throat> and yet at the same time, you're also involved in activism on campus and in the community, trying to get the arts establishment to, to um, look at issues of racial equity in particular. Yeah, you know, I... Gosh, great shout out to Mama D. That summer that I interned with you, I got to meet Mama D and begin wrestling with this idea of the horizon dancer, imagining the, uh, those of us who dance on the horizon. Uh, thank you, Mama D, for, for bringing me to that thinking. Uh, and, you know, I, I got to say my work, you know, I appreciate I hear you making this distinction between the practice and scholarship, you know, between being out in the community, the street and the academy. However, I will say that for me, they're one in the same. Um, what, you know, I went back to Brown because Michelle Alexander and Ruby Sales made it clear that this movement would be made by those of us who were capable of asking questions across silos of specialization. We had to get out of our lanes. If this is the direction we wanted to go, we needed to go this way. We needed to engage in conversation across space. And so I went to Brown not thinking I would ever be engaged in the quote unquote mainstream performance industry. And instead eager to ask that space questions because like Reverend Otis Moss III likes to name, um, these historically oppressive policies are reinforced and entrenched by narratives, right? And that's what, that's what my people do, my art people do, is we either reinforce or we resist oppressive narratives. And that's what the industry, in my opinion, is constantly battling with and losing. The industry of performance, the mainstream, is bound up in the task of reinforcing oppressive narratives. So I wanted to go into the space and ask these difficult questions and thankfully found a group of people game to ask it. And in that space met others who were like, let's continue asking, let's interrogate these institutions. Uh, like, you know, uh, an indigenous tale I once heard, um, social change agents uh, work along the body of a river. Some of us are out there responding to those who are drowning and some of us are out there at the head of the river looking to see why those people are falling in in the first place. 
And to me, the academy is a part of those institutions that are pushing people into the river in the first place. So my work right now, quite frankly, strategically, is engaged in the movement of disrupting narrative by, by bringing these difficult, important questions into the academy. Um, not centering a career necessarily as a, uh, as, you know, a teacher, a professor, not pursuing a tenure track. It's about this moment right now. Is the institution, I mean, willing to ask these difficult questions? And when they're not, then we need to employ some other strategies and I got to go find some other place that is willing to ask these difficult questions. And yet, meantime, it, you know, as has been your pattern, as folks listening will, will now discern, um, wherever Mauricio goes, he organizes. And uh, as everyone moved online this spring, uh, education online with the pandemic, um, <clears throat> you have specifically focused on this moment uh, to sharply ask questions of racial equity in the arts community and arts establishment. Say, say a little bit about that because there you're not only dealing with the academy, but you're, you're dealing with, with uh, the, the professional world as well. Yeah, you know, I think it connects correct, directly with what Jeff, Jeffrey's quoting here, reinforcing or resisting oppressive narratives. Um, our performance of, of humanity, of our interactions, of our community, um, obviously is uh, developed, thought of, um, in, on our stages, uh, on our and the stories that we watch through the web, right? Uh, and so, to me, it, we have to be, especially in the arts, interrogating performances of race and the economies around that, right? That there is a a deep history within our context of monetizing bodies, uh, and therefore needing to figure out narratives that support the, that monetizing, that justify how we're going to uh, reinforce enslave, you know, enslavement and the subjugation of women and the subjugation of um, disabled folks, et cetera, right? And so it's, it's clear to me how it connects to the arts, most definitely. And thankfully, we're in a moment right now where uh, arts institutions are being called to task Enough artists are saying no more. And if you search for it, you'll find things like We See You White American Theater, which was signed by 300 of some of the most, you know, currently popular um, theater makers who identify as Black, Indigenous, mixed people of color, um, who are naming, who are listing. These are the ways in which you um, support and prop up white supremacy culture in your workspaces. Here is how we want to hold you to account to change. It's happening in the theater. It's happening in film. And my work in those spaces has been to say, yes, and uh, this isn't a singular movement. This isn't one narrow lane. How do we connect this to housing issues right now? How do we connect this to health issues right now? How do we connect this to education reform broadly, right? Um, so that, you know, as we're also seeing, Film folks are now saying no more stories, please no more stories about police violence that kind of romanticizes or perpetuates, you know, a kind of empathy or sympathy for police gone bad, right? No more narratives that reinforce this kind of uh, monstrous figure of the black and brown body that needs to be incarcerated um, that lead to these kinds of uh, 
notions or, or notions of, la of laziness and of, uh, you know, people who are poor deserve to be poor, et cetera, right? So how do we as artists go across space and, and connect to other movements, um, which I've been trying to do and invite folks in particular into the Poor People's Campaign, which thankfully is a movement. I, I came through Union Theological Seminary as they were starting to develop some relationship with Kairos and have since then continued uh, organizing and supporting through their arts and culture programming. Do you want to give a quick shout out to your uh, <clears throat> your community of faith there in New York City, which uh, I, I know has been a, a community that's in, important as you try to integrate all these things? Yeah, uh, a lot of love to a New Day Church in the Bronx, uh, currently pastored by Tabitha Holly, who's a recent graduate of Union Theological Seminary, a radical space that is definitely thinking about um, centering intersectionality um, in all of the important ways. Uh, a small gathering of folks who meet in a, a Catholic school, um, a group of people who are no longer bound to a denomination, uh, making their way slowly, connecting to the street as often as possible, even under these circumstances, meeting regularly on Zoom nowadays, uh, doing some deep and consistent community building. Uh, so grateful for them. I'm very grateful that uh, in this call, you are connecting with Amy and with Norman and Laura Gottwald, who are on the call, and uh, with some other board members. I think I saw Tom Boomersheim on the call of the CLBSJ. Mauricio is just down the river from y'all. Uh, we want to make sure that when uh, it, the time becomes appropriate, he can come up uh, to the center and library and uh, join with Warren and others and talk about the arts and uh, social justice and also about scripture. Um, one of the things um, that everyone in this series being interviewed is being asked is how has scripture informed and, and inspired your activism, art and or scholarship. Um, and of course, conversely, how is your activism in art and uh, work as an organizer influenced uh, how you read scripture? This is after all the Center for the, uh, and Library for the Bible and Social Justice. It was animated by um, great scholars in biblical studies who also tried to keep a foot in the streets during their careers and have worked hard to try to make this legacy more accessible for activists. So uh, for you, um, Mauricio, what, what are some of these intersections? Uh, I love this question. Appreciated reading it last night. So I had time this morning to go back over my notes and be like, what scripture? <laughs> so grateful for Dr. Call. Boy, did Dr. Call teach me a thing or two about reading the text and Dr. Niang and, of course, uh, Reverend Dr. Cohn. There are four areas um, that I uh, return to regularly, four themes in my work, uh, and thankfully have found reinforcement through the text, and those being community building. How do we build community? How do we build trust? Um, how do we weep? How do we lament um, for folks who are experiencing trauma, the reverberation of trauma? How do we make room? How do we weep? Um, how do we rest? Gosh, is that a hard one? For those of us who do this work, I am failing right now to rest. 
and how do we subvert? What are tactics for subversion? Those four areas. And then a handful of texts that I have turned to that I remember this morning. I was like, okay, these four areas. What are images that come to mind? Stories from the text. With community building, uh, gosh, do I think about um, reclining? I think about Jesus reclining across difference, sitting at tables, reclining with folks whom otherwise the establishment is not so happy that he's reclining with, right? Um, I think about Matthew 9 and who Jesus is sitting across from and resting. Um, I think about Paul calling us in Romans 14 to eat, uh, also across difference to give up our, our dualistic notions of what eating is and who gets to eat what, you know, all the ways in which we, we put up these gates and say, you can or you cannot. Um, right now I'm doing a lot of work in Arkansas and the southeast part of Arkansas, Delta region. And for those of you who are from there um, might recognize this challenge, right? I'm vegan, y'all. In southeast Arkansas, they eat fried everything, in particular fish. Uh, and when I'm at that table, I eat fish too. And I don't say anything. It's not, in fact, I, I, I will invite somebody to a restaurant and order the fish for us to eat. Because gosh, is there, thankfully, I understand that culturally too, right? My family was always about sitting at the table. This is where we're going to hash it out. This is where we're going to talk about our things. Um, so if you ask anybody who I've worked with in Arkansas, they'll say, oh yeah, that guy who invites us to dinner, <laughs> that guy who takes us out for lunch. So I, I turn to those texts for that. I turn to, um, you know, Chad, all of your work with Sabbath economics and turning to uh, this notion of uh, enough with restraints, kind of the mutual aid, notions of mutual aid, which are so important right now during this period uh, and Exodus 15 and all the language around the mana and finding time to stop, to take enough, but only enough um, for those you care for and to share. I obviously think about all of the, the texts in the, the, the Second Testament around, you know, feeding the multitudes, right? Uh, and then I turn to, so some community building texts, and finally, I turn to Galatians, Galatians 3, and the disruption of these, this hierarchy of identity, of male, of a particular, etc., over women, over race, over ability, over, you know, social economic standing, all of that stuff. So those texts come to mind. Chet, I've got a long list. Do you want me to hold or should I keep naming stuff? No, that's good. Um, let me draw you out a little further. Um, two things come to mind. Um, Mauricio joined me at the uh, Children's Defense Fund, um, DeWitt Proctor Institute, uh, that happens in the summer at the Alex Haley's farm in Tennessee. And uh, <clears throat> he's, he's done a couple of things there. Uh, I remember at one point we worked with the story of uh, one of Jesus' exorcisms of a young boy who was um, occupied by a spirit that silenced him. And Mauricio um, embodied that in silent um, movement and, and acting out of that moment. And it was such a way of opening up folk to that text. You know, scholarship is so focused on texts and exegeting texts, and we forget that Sometimes if you get in your body and try to experience a text, um, you see that text in a new way. You can walk around it and literally uh, <clears throat> feel it in your bones. I know you've been using some of those same, te same techniques to help folk animate 
their suppressed and, and conflicted history uh, in Arkansas. Can you say a little bit about that project? Because I think people would be very interested in it a little bit more. Yeah, happy to. Uh, the project is called Remember 2019. Uh, and it's making space for the congregation of the black communities of Phillips County, Arkansas, who are working to uh, facilitate practices, support practices of self-determination, memory, and reflection that are directly related to the mass lynching of 1919 and the lasting effects of racial terror on that community. Some of you might be aware of at this point, over the past couple of years, it's been reported, reported on a fair amount, but there was a massacre um, of the black community in the fall of 1919, ending what is known as the Red Summer, um, uh, having to do with a, a kind of a, a land grab uh, stealing of, of, of the crop of the harvest of cotton as the tenant farmers were beginning to unionize. And here we are a hundred years later, still dealing with those legacies, uh, both you know, unconsciously and consciously in the present economies of that community. And so our work has been to think about what it is to remember. And we think about remembering in four ways. We think about remembering as recalling literally calling back our stories. Uh, we think about it as uh, reminding, making meaning again of our stories, understanding that trauma uh, makes it impossible for us to make meaning. It severs the moment from our ability to make meaning of the moment. And so this process is hoping to get us to begin to make meaning, to remind us um, to reconstitute, to reunite us across uh, spaces of distance. We focus on the black community, but a black community that's been separated, divided across class and uh, location, geographical, to bring us back together um, to, to recognize, oh yeah, this is how we've endured. This is how we have uh, joyfully made it through these moments, how we've survived. Uh, and that brings us to the last piece to, uh, Re, to re-envision, to prophecy, uh, to invite the current generations to say, this is who we are. Uh, we are not bound by our past alone. We are also here to make space for a future. Uh, and so in that way, we have done various things. We've created, um, we did a story bank project where we took a hundred stories. You can find 80 some odd of those stories on our website, remember2019.org, inviting folks to share stories about location, about where they are and what makes that location special. We made a, mus uh, a musical, a musical oral history event, uh, kind of telling the story of hush harbors, those spaces where spirituals came out of, um, where folks went to mourn and strategize and celebrate and how hush harbors endure, how spirituals and the blues and contemporary R&B come from the hush harbor and tell, weaving a story of the last hundred years with an intergenerational cast of musicians from the Delta. And we're currently creating a book, a little book comprised of testimonies, prayers, uh, recipes, uh, pictures. Um, and it's, it's called um, uh, a, a Black Cypress, a survival guide of Phillips County, the cypress tree being the tree that deeply rooted can endure floods. This is a flooded area and how this community has endured. So different ways for folks to recall, to reimagine 
uh, using different mediums, knowing that just talking about things isn't enough. And I want to just briefly offer, Chad, notion of scholarship. Boy, do we have to mess with that. Thankfully, I'm in a, a weird area of scholarship, the arts. Gosh, does the arts have a hard time uh, claiming itself as scholarship. Thankfully, I'm with folks who get to say, yes, embodiment making meaning of what we're doing with our bodies and expressing it through our bodies is a kind of inquiry. It is a research as well. And instead of saying, oh no, but we can only understand things one way, we have to in invite folks to expand their level, their, their capacity for inquiry uh, to other forms as well, uh, artistic performance as well. You have been listening to the Bartcast produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. For more programs and other resources, go to chedmyers.org. Join our community-supported ministry at bcm-net.org backslash donate. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.